0: And we're in Proverbs 24, Proverbs 24, and we'll be doing verses 1 to 16 this afternoon. Proverbs 24, let's read verses 1 to 16. There it says, Do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. For their minds devise violence, and their lips talk of trouble. By wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. And by knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. A wise man is strong, and a man of knowledge increases power. For by wise guidance you will wage war, and in an abundance of counselors there is victory. Wisdom is too exalted for a fool. He does not open his mouth in the gate. One who plans to do evil, men will call a schemer. The devising of folly is sin, and the scoffer is an abomination to men. If you are slack in the day of distress, your strength is limited. Deliver those who are being taken away to death, and those who are staggering to slaughter, oh, hold them back. If you say, see, we did not know this, does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? And does he not know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render to man according to his work? My son, eat honey, for it is good. Yes, the honey from the comb is sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is thus for your soul. If you find it, then there will be a future, and your hope will not be cut off. Do not lie and wait, O wicked man, against the dwelling of the righteous. Do not destroy his resting place. For a righteous man falls seven times and rises again. But the wicked stumble in the day of calamity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask and pray that, Lord, as we open up your word, and Lord, as we seek to understand and to apply, Lord, its truth to our lives, Lord, we pray that you might convince us of these things, Lord, in our inner man, Lord, that you might write your very word upon our heart and on our mind, Lord, on our lips, upon our hands, Lord, that we would be quick to obey you, Lord, to do all things, uh, Lord, that are in your word, Lord, that our life would conform to the very life of Christ. So, Lord, that righteousness that we have by faith in Christ that has been imputed to us, Lord, we pray that it might manifest itself, Lord, in our own lives, in the way that we live day by day, Lord, in how we talk and how we relate to, uh, Lord, our wives and our children, Lord, our neighbors and Lord, whoever it is that we are in contact with. Lord, as we live before you day by day, we pray that we do so in a way that is pleasing to you. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, here again, we continue in the book of Proverbs where you do have this deposit of uh, practical righteousness. This is what the book of Proverbs is dealing with. Uh, Not only the commending of wisdom to us and the necessity of of, uh, receiving it and applying it to our lives, but also many Uh, ways in which this wisdom is manifested and ought to be practiced day to day in our life. We know that God has called us uh, not to live an unholy life, but when we are converted, when we are called to salvation, we are called to walk in newness of life. And the book of Proverbs gives us a very valuable guide for how it is that we ought to live in these various circumstances and situations that we find ourselves in, right? This is the case with all of us. We find ourselves each and every day in many different scenarios, situations conversations with this person with that relationships right we have uh all of these things these aspects and facets of our life and we are to conform our lives as best as we can to the very life of christ and so how do we do that well the book of proverbs is a very valuable guide because it teaches us in practical ways how it is that we are to live day by day in a way that is pleasing to the lord so let's begin there in proverbs 24 verses one and two Do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them, for their minds devise violence and their lips talk trouble. Here, one such practical aspect of the way that we ought to live is not to be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. That there is this temptation and this desire to be envious of prosperous evil men. And many times, uh, often is the case in this present world, that those who have the greatest prosperity, those that have the most money and power, are typically evil men who give themselves over to many evil things. Many times they arise, or they rise up to their position of prominence by sin, and they maintain it by sin, and by the wealth and power that they have, they open themselves up to many various sins uh, that can be committed in this life. And there is this temptation to want to be like them because of their prosperity. But he's saying here, we shouldn't do that. We have to judge people in a proper way and see that all of the wicked, all of those who are evil, ultimately they will be destroyed. Though they may have in this life some temporary comforts, some temporary pleasures. They may seem to be above all of the troubles and afflictions of this life, but ultimately there is coming a day of judgment and they will answer for all of their crimes. So why would we be envious of those who we know are destined to destruction if they do not repent of their sins? He says, don't envy them and don't desire to be with them, to be with them when they are committing their sins, when they're living the lifestyle of the rich and famous. So we have to fight against this and pursue righteousness, pursue peace, do those things that are pleasing to the Lord, even if the result is present afflictions and turmoil, because we know that we're not living for this present life, but we're living for the life to come, right? These people, their minds devise violence and their lips talk trouble. What is on their minds and what is on their lips and what is in their life is violence, it's trouble, it's sin, it's evil. It's things that are displeasing to God and God has set himself against them. So why would we envy those that God is going to destroy? Why would we want to be with those that God is going to bring to ruin and destruction? Because if we are with them, then what will happen to us? We'll be ruined along with them, right? We'll be destroyed just as assuredly as they are if we partake of the sins that they partake of. Psalm 73, we know uh, this was the case here as well psalm 73 this was the temptation that was there presented before the prophet psalm 73 1 surely god is good to israel to those who are pure in heart but as for me my feet came close to stumbling my steps had almost slipped For I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eyes bulge from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against heaven, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place. And waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, How does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease they have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure, and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Here, when we are judging uh, our lives and the lives of others by present circumstances, then there will be this temptation to be envious of the arrogant and to also bemoan our own existence when we are being stricken and having our share of chastisement in this present life. But what brings all of these things into their proper perspective? We have to have a knowledge, an understanding. We have to have our eyes fixed on the life to come. And what is going to happen to those who are godless and those who are evildoers. And later in the psalm, he talks about God setting them on slippery places and that they will fall to their own ruin and destruction. Certainly in the case of the rich man and Lazarus, in the present life, many people would have been envious of the rich man. But what about in the life to come? Is anybody envious of the rich man who is in Hades being tormented day and night? No one is envious of him as he is in the life to come. But which one has more permanence? Which one is the greater reality? The temporal blessings and comforts of this present life or the eternal, right, fixed torments of the life to come, right? That is what is true of him for all eternity. So we should not desire to be like him, nor should we want to be in their company in terms of their sin and what they are doing against God. Verses 3 and 4. By wisdom, a house is built, and by understanding, it is established. And by knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. Here, it is by wisdom that a house is built up. It is by understanding that it is established. And this can refer to many various things. It is a multifaceted uh, proverb in what it is talking about. Certainly, in terms of the house of God, the household of faith, the church of Jesus Christ. The church is built up by the wisdom and understanding that we receive through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the church. He is the very wisdom and the very righteousness of God. So the church, the household of God, is built up upon the wisdom that is found in Christ. And by that wisdom of Christ, the household of God is richly furnished. There are many pleasant riches that reside in the household of faith that come to us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he is the wisdom of God, and the church, which is the household of faith, is built upon our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Also, this would be true of each individual person. The salvation that we have as individual believers, right? that salvation has come to us That faith is built up upon the wisdom of God found in Christ. And we are described, our present lives, uh, each individual is described as a person who builds a house, whether that is on a foundation of rock or whether that is on a foundation of sand. It is the wise man who builds his house upon the rock. And that wisdom in Matthew chapter 7 is seen in those who hear the word of Christ and keep it or obey it. We, they are likened unto the wise man who builds his house upon the rock. Those who, hears, those who hear the words of Christ and who do not obey them or do not keep them are like the fool who builds his house upon the sand. And then the winds come and the rains fall and the house comes down to its ruin. So the individual person, their life should be built upon this wisdom. And when that is true, then their rooms will be filled with all precious and pleasant riches. Also, this can be true of the Christian family as well, right? In our own households where there is a husband and there's the wife and there are the children. Whenever the house is built upon the wisdom of God, whenever there is this desire to instill within the children and in the home the fear of the Lord, and that house is built upon this wisdom then God gives his blessing to that home so that that home is filled with grace, with mercy, with the knowledge of God, with the salvation of God. Because many times God is pleased to pass down the faith from parents to children. And when they build their house and are conscientiously trying to raise their children in the fear of the Lord, many times God will establish that home in righteousness so that that home is filled with, with pleasant riches. What greater blessing could we have as Christian fathers than to have fellow heirs of the kingdom of God living within our house? To have trophies of God's grace there within the walls of our home? These are the riches that we desire and what we should want. And then for that home to be filled with peace, with harmony, with godliness, right? these are the kinds of riches that we want to be established in our house as we build up our Christian homes. And then also, this can be true in terms of temporal blessings as well. Whenever we live lives that are pleasing to God, God can, and many times does, bless that home with temporal blessings. There will be an abundance of food. They'll be able to provide everything they need for the home. There will even be a prosperity there, and then being able to give good things to their children, to their wives, whenever it is built upon uh, this foundation. So this has many, many aspects and many applications to the church, to the individual, to the family, to the home, all of these things. The key is building it upon wisdom, receiving the word of God, and not living according to our own understanding, but building up our homes and our lives and our churches based upon the wisdom of God found in the word of God. Verses 5 and 6. A wise man is strong, and a man of knowledge increases power. For by wise guidance you will wage war, and in an abundance of counselors there is victory. Certainly this is true in regards to warfare in this present life, but ultimately it is true in terms of the Christian life, because the Christian life is described as a life of warfare, of battle, of waging war and fighting against principalities and powers and invisible armies of darkness, Right, that we are to wage war as a Christian church against Uh, The devil and his angels, but also against false teachers who are emissaries or representatives uh, of his that seek to come into the church and to lead people astray to a denial of the truth. And it is through wisdom that we are strong, it is through knowledge that we increase with power so that we are able to wage this kind of spiritual holy war and vanquish all of our enemies and the enemies of God this wisdom that we gain from the word of God, which is why we need to have our senses trained by a constant practice to discern between good and evil, as it says in Hebrews chapter five. Ephesians 6, 10 to 20 describes the Christian life. And again, this would be true both individually. It would be true in terms of the Christian home and it was true of the Christian church. In all these areas, There is a war, a battle to be fought, and it is wisdom that makes us powerful and strong in order to fight and overcome these things. Ephesians 6.10, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places." which is the word of God. With all prayer and and petition, pray at all times. In the spirit, with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that is, proclaiming that I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So there he talks about this struggle, not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, powers, world forces, against darkness and spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. This is the war that we are called to fight and it is only through wisdom that we can be assured of the strength and power to overcome such foes. He also mentions an abundance of counselors. In them, there is victory as well. That God has so designed our spiritual warfare that we are not to fight independently. We're not to fight by ourselves, but in an abundance of counselors. That is, alongside or within the church of Jesus Christ. As we are united to the body of Christ, and we are there to encourage and strengthen one another to wage and to fight this war. Verse 7, wisdom is too exalted for a fool. He does not open his mouth in the gate. Wisdom, true wisdom, is too exalted for a fool, right? It's too good, it's too sublime, too spiritual for a fool to have it within his mouth so that he is unable to open his mouth in the gate. He cannot open his mouth, though fools are very good at opening their mouths, and they're very good at talking and saying whatever comes to their mind, but what is a fool unable to do? He cannot speak wisdom, he cannot speak true wisdom and knowledge because He is completely ignorant of these things. That can only be given by the Spirit of God. And because the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, the the wisdom of God is foolishness to him. Therefore, he's not able to understand. He cannot discern. He cannot speak these things. So though a fool may speak, and though he may present himself as a wise counselor, he is unable to actually benefit and give true wisdom to people, Because he's relying on his own understanding, not upon the understanding of God. So though he opens his mouth in the gate, he fails to give anything that is beneficial. And we have to remember, in the natural state, what are we all? We're all fools in the natural state. So any wisdom that we have has come to us from where? It has come to us from God. What do you have that you have not received? If then you have received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And yet so often, whenever we gain even a smidge of wisdom or knowledge or understanding, we have this tendency for knowledge to puff us up. But we shouldn't be like that. We should be humbled when we come to an understanding of any truth, especially when we come to it and there are others who have not arrived at that understanding yet. So often we are tempted to be very arrogant, to be very proud, to be very conceited, to think that we are wiser, that we are more gifted than them. Yet, when we come to that knowledge of the truth, we're not coming to it on our own. Through our own strength and understanding, it is a gift that we have been given that we have received from God. So we should hold that knowledge with humility, with love, and use it to edify and to seek to build up the church. Not use it to try to put others down and to exalt ourselves at their own expense. Verse 8 and 9. One who plans to do evil men will call a schemer. The devising of folly is sin and the scoffer is an abomination to men. Here, one who plans to do evil, people are gonna call him a schemer. Now who wants to be called a schemer, right? No one, this guy's a real schemer over there. No one wants to be called a schemer and yet those who devise evil, this is exactly what they are. They're always plotting and planning and scheming new ways to commit evil planning and thinking and devising ways to commit sin. And there is a sense in the Bible, in Ecclesiastes, where it says that there's nothing new under the sun. And the sins that we see committed in our own day are the same sins that have been committed since when? Since the very fall, since the very beginning. Go back to Genesis 3, and from there onward, there is nothing new under the sun. It is the same sins repeated over and over again. However, men are good at using ingenuity to create new ways to commit the same old sins, right? New versions of it or new ways to do this and to do that. And this is what we often see in the world today. Instead of using their industry, their ingenuity, the natural gifts that God gives to men, certainly sometimes there are, these are used to benefit mankind, such as in communication, It is a great blessing to be able to pick up a phone and to call my mom and dad who live over in Bags, Oklahoma and talk to them every day. And if we want to do it on a video conference, we can, I can see their beautiful face and they have to look back at my not so beautiful face, but it's a wonderful blessing to be able to do such things. That is a, an advancement in the way that we communicate. Certainly the advancements we've seen in transportation. Is it preferable to drive in a car to church or to have to ride a horse? Well, we'd much rather drive in a car or to have to walk, especially last week when it was so cold or the week before. It would have been miserable, but you all got into your nice vehicles, hopefully your husband went and started them before you left, so it was already toasty and warm when you got in there, and you drove home in comfort in those things. So those are great advancements in terms of communication, in terms of transportation, in terms of medicine, in terms of many things. People use ingenuity. They use the natural gifts and blessings that God bestows upon men in order to improve the quality of life, to make things better for mankind, and that is a good use of those things. However, what do people also use ingenuity for? To to commit sins against God. New ways, they'll take whatever it is and they'll find some way to corrupt it, some way to defile it, and they love to devise schemes in order to create new ways of sinning against God. And this is a very horrible thing when it happens. And this is coming from the devising of folly, which is here called a sin. Even the devising of folly in the mind, before it is acted upon, before it actually manifests itself in the world, already it's what? Even in the mind. It's already a sin in the heart and the mind. Then it manifests itself outwardly in the words, in the deeds, in the actions, but it already is a sin in the heart and in the mind. The thoughts and intention are always on evil. And we know from Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, that the 10th commandment forbids coveting. And coveting is a sin of the heart. It's a sin that takes place in the mind. And it's already a sin before the person goes and steals his neighbor's possessions. Before he goes and seeks to commit adultery with his neighbor's wife, he's already committed the sin in his heart and mind through the sin of coveting. And so we must seek to be purified of such things and mortify the deeds of the flesh. Not only those outward sins, but also pray that God would conform our very minds to the image of Christ, right? That we would be transferred, as it says in Romans 12, 1 to 2, transformed by the renewing of our mind. We have to have our mind conformed to the mind of Christ. And if our mind and heart is conformed, then what will be true of our tongue? What will be true of our actions? They also will be conformed as well. First Tim. If you are slack in the day of distress, your strength is limited. If you are slack, if you're lazy, if you are weak in the day of distress, then that's when you need greater strength. You need greater vigor during the day of distress. Right? Whenever you're walking downhill, it's very easy to walk at a brisk pace. But when you're walking up a hill, it takes more effort. It takes more zeal in order to reach your destination. And so it is in the day of distress. If you think in the day of distress, you will be able to easily live the Christian life, easily live the life of faith, then what is going to be true of you? Your strength is going to be very limited. If you have weak faith, it will be very hard in days of distress will greatly injure your faith and your Christian life because there is such a weak faith there. We need to have a strong faith, a strong faith that is able to endure these days of distress and these days of evil. Little faith equals little strength. Verse 11, deliver those who are being taken away to death and those who are staggering to slaughter, oh, hold them back. If you say, see, we do not know this, Does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? And does he not know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render to man according to his work? Here, those who are being taken away to death, those staggering to slaughter, he says, hold them back. Do whatever you can to preserve, to deliver them from this horrible outcome. When we see sinners who are living in their sin. Are they not being delivered over, taken to death? Are they not staggering toward a day of slaughter? This is what is happening to them. And it's not unjust. It is just because this is the just reward of our sin. But that was true of us as well. Were we not in our sinful state also being taken away to death? Were we not also staggering there toward slaughter? And yet we have been delivered. And many times our deliverance came. Ultimately, it comes from the Lord. But God uses people who were compassionate to us, who came to us, who shared the gospel with us, who taught the Bible to us, and God used them as the means to deliver us and to snatch us out of the fire and to take us away from death. So if somebody has done that for us, and if ultimately God has delivered us from those things, and then we see other people who are staggering on their way to death, then what should we do? We should try to deliver them, hold them back, keep them from going to their ruin and destruction. Now, if we appeal to them, if we warn them of the wrath to come, if we tell them of the way of salvation and they don't want anything to do with it, then there's nothing we can do and their blood is on their own head. But if we fail to warn them, then God will require their blood from us as well. So when we see this, we ought to do whatever we can to deliver them and to hold them back. Especially our loved ones, our, the little ones that God gives us that are in our home are born dead in trespasses and sins. They are born under the wrath of God. That if this does not change, then they will be taken away to death. And as Christian parents and Christian grandparents, we should do whatever we can to deliver our little ones from the wrath to come. And we do that by Teaching them the Bible, by preaching the gospel to them, by modeling for them the life of faith and how to live a life pleasing to God. But we should do that as well with others, with those that we come into contact with. Then in verse 12, if you say, We did not know this, if we say, Well, we didn't know that they were going to death and slaughter, what do you mean you didn't know? Have you read the Bible? It's all over the Bible. The Bible constantly talks about the day of judgment. So how can we not know? that these sinners are going to a day of judgment. If we have any knowledge of Christian doctrine, the the day of judgment is spoken of repeatedly in the Bible over and over and over again. And that every man will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That it is appointed unto a man to die, and after that comes what? After that comes judgment. So how can we say that we don't know that these sinners are going to the day of judgment? If you say we don't, don't know, well, God knows the heart. And he knows that you know these things are true. And these vain excuses, he will not accept. He says, no, these are worthless excuses. He knows it. Uh, he knows it. He knows what is in your heart. He knows what is in your mind. And he will render to a man according to his deeds. God knows the heart. And he knows that if what is keeping a person from speaking the truth is malice, is hatred, is hatred of their fellow man, then God sees and knows those things. Now, sometimes it is our own weakness. Sometimes it is our own fear and timidity, and we need to seek to overcome those things. But if it is motivated by this evil desire for them to receive judgment and justice and for them to be put to death, then God knows that as well, and he will repay each man according to what he has done. James chapter five, James 5 Verse 19. James 5:19 <clears throat> says, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Here, if one from the the brethren from the body is straying from the truth, straying from the gospel of Christ. And one person comes and turns him back, right? If he's straying from the truth, then he's straying toward death. This is where he is headed. But you go and you turn him back, then he says, know that the one who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Not that we save people, but we are the means or the tool used by God in order to bring about their deliverance. Whether that be their initial conversion or whether that be in this case, an erring or a straying brother that God brings back to the faith. God uses means, he uses circumstances to accomplish his will. And when we are being faithful to the Lord to love our brother, to love our neighbor as ourself and going and discharging our duty toward them, then God can and will use those things to bring back the brother who was straying, and you are saving their soul from death. You're doing it out of your love, your pity, your mercy for this person. You don't want them to, to be destroyed, and so God uses you to do such things. Also, while we're in James, James chapter 2, verse 13, this would apply to the end of uh, Proverbs 12, 24 12. Judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The one who shows no mercy will re- not receive mercy on the day of judgment. Right? Again, not that our showing mercy earns us mercy, but what proves that we have received mercy from God is that we will become merciful people. Just as God has mercy on us, then we will have mercy and compassion on others as well. And Christ, as we read earlier this morning from Romans chapter five, demonstrated his love for us in this and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. So are we only to be merciful to those who are believers? Are we not to be merciful even to those who are sinners? Wasn't Christ merciful to us when we were still in a state of sin? So the way that we have received mercy is how we should give mercy to others. So when we see sinners in their sin destined for destruction and ruin and a eternity of misery, then we ought to be moved with compassion and mercy for them to do whatever we can to deliver them from this state of misery and from this impending doom that will come upon them. Proverbs twenty four thirteen, My son, eat honey for it is good. Yes, the honey from the comb is sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is thus for your soul. And if you find it, then there will be a future and your hope will not be cut off. There, honey is good. Honey from the comb is sweet to the taste. And this is something that is universally recognized and understood. Honey is a delightful thing to eat. This is why you like to get a a good biscuit, some butter on it, and you put honey all over it. And who doesn't like that, right? Only someone who's insane wouldn't like uh, good sweet honey on a biscuit. Well, just as honey is sweet to the taste, so also wisdom is that for our souls, right? There is this correlation between the physical and the spiritual, between the seen and the unseen. Just as honey is a delightful thing to taste, so also wisdom is a delightful thing for the soul. And it brings a great benefit to it. And this is something that will be true of believers. Believers have a taste, they have a desire for the honey, for the sweetness that comes from the word of God. Unbelievers, they don't like it. For them, what is honey is actually very bitter to them and they don't like the way that it tastes and it is repulsive to them. But for those who are believers, what is bitter to an unbeliever is very sweet to the believer because their taste buds spiritually have been properly in to the word of God, right? In our natural state, everything is out of whack. There is no proper alignment to what is good and right and proper. But in a converted state, in the state of salvation, then our taste buds, spiritually speaking, are rightly ordered, and we have a desire for such things. This was the case in Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 3. When he ate the word of God, the scroll that came to him, it was sweet to him. It was sweet in the way that it tasted. It was good to him. Now, when he went and gave that same sweetness to the people of Israel, it was very bitter to them. They didn't like it in one bit. And also we remember from Psalm 19 that one of the ways the word of God is described there is that it is sweeter than honey and the drippings from the honeycomb. If there is bitterness in the word of God to us, it's always coming from our flesh. It is the flesh that rises up against that. And in our current state, because we still have the flesh and we have the spirit, in some regards, the word will be sweet to us. And then in other regards, it will be bitter to us. And we have to pray that the bitterness would go away and it would be sweeter and sweeter and sweeter to us. And this we acquire as we are sanctified more and more and more by the word of God. Then verses 15 and 16. It says, Do not lie in wait a wicked man against the dwelling of the righteous. Do not destroy his resting place. For a righteous man falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in the time of calamity. Don't lie in wait against the dwelling of the righteous. Don't destroy his resting place. And there are those who will do such things, such as wicked Haman against Mordecai. He sought to destroy him. This also happened in 1 Samuel 19, when Saul sent servants to go and lie outside of David's house and wait for him so that they might capture him and destroy him. And he was motivated by this, not because David was a murderer. He wasn't a a child kidnapper. He wasn't doing any of those things. It was his righteousness that was the ire of Saul that made him desire to want to destroy him and kill him and to send these men to lie outside of his house to capture him and to destroy him. So we shouldn't do that, right? We ought not to do that to one another, to seek to destroy and to ruin each other. Then he says, the righteous man falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumbles in the time of calamity, right? The righteous man will fall seven times. And this is a fitting description of what we are like in the Christian life. Is not our Christian life an experience over and over again of what? We stumble and we fall, we fail, and we do this over and over again. But though we may fall seven times a day, What will the righteous man always do? By the help of the Spirit, he will always rise again. Because what is preserving his faith and what is keeping him in this salvation is not his own strength, but it is the power of God. But God lets us uh, have our failings, have our sins, have our weaknesses to remind us that in ourselves, we are completely nothing and that we must rely on him. Our time of sanctification is, it is for our purification so that we would grow stronger and greater in our faith, but it is also for our humility, for us to be reminded over and over again that on our own, we are nothing, right? In Christ, we are strong, and on our own, we have nothing. We are completely weak and helpless, and everything we have comes from Him, So we will stumble, and we will fall, and we will have our failings, and we'll do it seven times a day, or 70 times a day, or sometimes 700 times a day. This is the way it is in the Christian life. However, what proves that one is a true believer instead of a false believer is the righteous man will stumble and fall, and the false believer will stumble and fall. But what is the difference between the one and the other? the righteous will rise again. He will always rise again and he will press on to the kingdom of God. But the false convert will fall and he'll finally give up and say enough is enough and I don't want any more to do with this. And then he'll walk away from the faith and prove that he never was truly a part of the people of God. This falling can refer both to sin and we know according to Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20, that there is no one who is righteous who does not sin. And in first John chapter one, it says, if we say that we do not sin, what are we? We're liars and the truth is not in us. So there's no one who can say that they do not sin. There's no one, even the most mature Christian in this life who can say that he does not stumble and fall in some areas. We all stumble in many ways. It says in James chapter three, especially in what way? There, it's the tongue, right? Especially in regards to the tongue. We all stumble in many ways. So it can refer to the stumblings of sin. Also, here, it can refer to the stumblings of affliction that God afflicts us seven times a day, or seven times, or in many ways, God chastises his children. And when we are afflicted by the Lord, such as Job was in the book of Job, This is a kind of falling into affliction, being brought under this sore, harsh circumstances from the Lord. And yet, what did Job ultimately do in the midst of all those sufferings and persecutions? He persevered. He overcame them. He pressed on. He didn't give up. He didn't renounce his faith. He didn't curse God and die like his wife wanted him to do. But he pressed on and he was faithful to the Lord. Though again, he wasn't perfect. He had his weaknesses. He had his sin that was brought out and and brought to light as a result of those things. But he never forsook the Lord. He never renounced his faith. He never cursed God and said, let me die. So there are sins and there are afflictions. And the difference between the righteous and the wicked is not that the righteous never sin and the wicked only sin. But it's that the righteous fall, but they rise again. But the wicked, during the day of calamity, they stumble to their own ruin and destruction. They commit sin and they're never renewed again to repentance. Right? They are afflicted, ultimately, with eternal afflictions that will come upon them on the day of judgment. And it will be to their ruin and to their destruction. And even when God afflicts them in this life, it is not for their benefit and for their good. It is not because he is their loving heavenly father and he is determined to bring good about it. It is for their ruin and for their destruction. In contrast to the righteous who have their ch- chastisements in this life, but whenever God chastises us and whenever he brings afflictions upon his people, he's doing it for our benefit, for our good, because he's our father And he knows how to discipline us in order to purify us, to sanctify us, and to produce more holiness and righteousness in us. And he will always use those evil, hard circumstances. He'll always use them for our benefit and for our good. And there will be nothing that can separate us from the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So this should be an encouragement to us. Because what I know is going to happen this week with each and every one of you is you're going to fall seven times. But Lord willing, you will rise again. By the help of the Spirit, you will rise again. And this is what we must keep on doing throughout the time of our sojourning. Falling, rising again, until we enter into the perfect kingdom of Christ. And then we'll never fall again. Then we will stand upright for all eternity. And that's what awaits us. And for us believers... This present life right now, what we're experiencing, this is as bad as it's ever going to get. And only good is awaiting us. But for the wicked, even who has great prosperity and all the comforts and pleasures of this life, we also know that they're typically very miserable people. They're all depressed. They're taking all sorts of drugs and stuff because they're so miserable. But this is as good as it'll ever get for them. And everything that awaits them in the life to come is going to be misery. So can we press on? Absolutely, we can. We have an entire uh, category, an entire catalog of men and women in Hebrews chapter 11 who went through harsh circumstances, many afflictions. They fell seven times. They continued to press on and they entered into their heavenly reward. And we must follow in their footsteps. We must follow our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who for the joy set before him was able to endure the sufferings of the cross. So we can endure ours as well. And let us do so. Let us press on until we enter into the kingdom of God. Well, let's pray, and then we will be dismissed. And Casey McDaniel, I'm going to ask you if you'll pray and dismiss us today.